Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Righteous Republic, the Political Foundations of Modern India by Ananya Vajpayee. The book is published by Harvard University Press and Ananya is Associate Fellow with the Centre for the Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. The book is a rethinking of the self in self-rule. This is the self as it is understood through the ideas generated and reworked by five leading figures of the Indian independence movement. Analyzing crises of the self, which it is our in the book stem from a crisis of tradition and, and characterize this period in Indian history, the book retells the movement for self-rule as a history of the development of ideas. It really is a fully accessible and readable book, and I had the pleasure of speaking with Ananya just a few moments before. Okay, so without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the show, and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So the, the the book is about the the self in self rule or the the swar in swaraj as you put it. But I thought before we talk about that self, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your research background and what led you to writing this book? Well, I um, you know I actually began uh, <clears throat> my life as an academic <clears throat> studying um, literature and languages. I studied. Um, uh, both uh, European and Anglo-American literature. Then I started to study some European languages. Uh, I studied linguistics, literary theory. And then uh, by the time I got to my doctoral work, I kind of switched into Indian languages and Sanskrit and philology. Uh, And eventually, by the time I had sort of completed my graduate studies, I really thought of myself as a a classicist, but uh, looking at Indian material, so as an Indologist, you could say. So there was this kind of progression in my in my studies, but then I eventually found myself with a job, uh, you know, teaching in a department of history. And as the South Asianist sort of in residence, I was I was assigned to teach a lot of modern Indian history uh, and modern South Asian history. So eventually, when I sort of began to think about writing my book. Uh, It ended up being a sort of marriage of my training and my teaching, you know, um, with both a sort of pre-modern and modern component to it and textual study combined with sort of historical study. And and that's what eventually produced uh, Righteous Republic. Sorry. Yeah. Wonderful, yeah. thank you. So, so your book, Righteous Republic, it's it's about the Indian independence movement, this desire for for self rule, and this is a subject that's been written about a lot. But as you argue in the introduction, there's been a crucial omission in the existing understandings of the Indian independence movement. So, I was wondering, could you tell us, please, what is missing and how you went about investigating it via these five chosen figures, which you focus on in the book. Well, you know, <clears throat> the word for um, uh, self-rule or independence, political freedom, that was used uh, very widely during India's anti-colonial and nationalist phase, which is from the late 19th century right into the middle of the 20th century when India gained independence. That word uh, is Swaraj, and there are other variations on it, like Swatantrita and so on. Um, and Swaraj uh, kind of breaks down internally uh, into two parts, Swa and Raj, uh, which literally translate as self and rule or self and sovereignty. And one of the ways I set up my argument in the book is that is to say that, you know, most accounts of uh, Indian nationalism and Indian modernity Uh, proceed as accounts of India's quest for sovereignty or rule. So the Raj in Swaraj, right? How did British Raj give way to Indian self-rule 
how did how did British rule uh, uh, give way to to Indian independence? Um, but I felt that there had been a sort of long term neglect by historians and other kinds of scholars of of the simultaneous search for the self, for the swa in Swaraj. Uh, you know, because because when you when you look at the word carefully and and the idea behind it. Um, you know, Swaraj signifies self-rule in the sense of rule of or by the self and also rule over the self, right? So what constitutes the self? You know, uh, what what is Indian independence, the independence of, right? What, what kinds of notions of collective selfhood are embedded in this, in this term and in, in, in the history that surrounds it? Um, I wanted to investigate if if it was possible to write a history of that search for the self, which goes along with the quest for sovereignty, uh, which together defined, you know, India's nationalist movement, the movement for political self-determination. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to do that, I, I mean, there's so many different ways you could approach this question. Uh, but I really worked my way through... Um, you know, the ideas and the kind of uh, discursive engagements of five sort of founding figures that I, I chose and I arrived at them after, you know, a great deal of, of, of uh, sort of uh, uh, worrying and thinking about, you know, which figures I would choose because there was, there was, there was a great range of nationalist thinkers, intellectuals, political leaders, um, artists, those who had been politically active and involved in, in um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, Indian public life between, say, the 1880s and through the 1940s. Um, and eventually I, I kind of narrowed it down to, to five figures. And I um, tried to look at how each of them through their uh, engagement with the past, with a body of texts, uh, with certain ideas of, of, of tradition uh, and of history, um, you know, how they uh, presented or helped us to understand different aspects of Indian selfhood, political selfhood, and, uh, and how they helped to define and shape uh, India's modernity, always in conversation with tradition. Um, even 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 when when there's a when there's a break from tradition, that conversation has to be had before uh, you know a, a new kind of modernity can be constructed. And so um, the five figures I chose were uh, Gandhi, um, Nehru, Ambedkar, Tagore, and uh, and a figure who's slightly offbeat as a choice, uh, the sort of father of modern Indian art. Abhinendranath Tagore. Uh, it was kind of an unconventional choice, I, I admit, but uh, those were the five that I chose. Wonderful. And we'll talk about um, each of those those five figures um, in more depth later on uh, later on in the podcast. But first, I just wanted to um, work through some of the concepts that, that you work with in the book. You draw on the work on, on the, of the philosopher McIntyre for your understanding of the crisis in the self, which you argue was... Um, taking place during this period. So I was wondering, can you tell us about how McIntyre helped you understand um, the self-rule movement? Uh, it's very interesting. You know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't really acquainted with McIntyre's work, uh, but one of my uh, mentors uh, and, and friends, uh, Pratap Mehta, uh, he's, he's studied political philosophy and, and taught it, and he happened to be visiting the States when I was just beginning to write this book. Um, and I went to visit him. He was he was at UPenn for a little while. I went to visit him in Philadelphia, and we went out on the campus. You know, we went for lunch, and then we passed by the bookstore. And he said, "Just come with me for a minute in here." And he went straight to the political philosophy shelf, and he picked up. There were three or four volumes of McIntyre's essays, and he bought them for me and gave them to me right then <laughs> and there. And I, I took them back with me to Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, where I was living at the time. And I just started reading them because I thought, you know, there must be some purpose to him giving me these. 
um, I had I had told him about the the kind of book I was thinking about writing. I hadn't yet started writing it, and I found many things in McIntyre which were hugely suggestive to me. Even though, I mean, you know, it's it's philosophy. It's not history. It's it's really about Europe. It's not about South Asia. Uh, but he, you know, reading McIntyre helped me to understand a lot of things and and. Two or three of the ideas that I that were very productive for me. One was uh, this business of thinking about the relationship between tradition and modernity, um, and specifically thinking about uh, what is what is a crisis in a knowledge tradition, and how does that get either resolved in what he calls an epistemological breakthrough, or uh, you know how do traditions end up foundering or ending because they're not able to resolve internal crises of an epistemological nature. And McIntyre gives some wonderful examples. For example, he talks about, um, you know, uh, the history of science uh, in, in, in Europe and how Galileo uh, resolves uh, a, a, an epistemological crisis and takes science in a new direction, which allows it to flourish and become modern science. Um, similarly, he talks about Luther. Um, he also talks, uh, he, he develops this wonderful example through Shakespeare of, of uh, Hamlet, Prince Hamlet, uh, and how, uh, you know, an epistemological crisis essentially is a crisis in what you know to be true about the world, your theory about the world, and a, a, a certain misfit that develops between what you, how you think the world works and how it actually appears to be working in a given set of circumstances. So he explains how Hamlet can be understood in this way, uh, in that everything that he thinks he knows about his kingdom, his family, his relationships with his parents and his, uh, his uncle, his beloved and so on, how all of that is uh, completely thrown out of gear uh, uh, by, by the, the murder of his father and by the fact of his uncle usurping his father's throne and marrying Hamlet's mother, Gertrude. And when Hamlet confronts this crisis, he's not able to resolve it. Uh, and, and, and the play ends as a tragedy. It ends in, in madness and, 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 and in, in death and destruction all around. But um, successful examples you know, of, of, of the resolution of such a crisis of, of knowledge, of truth, of our idea uh, and and the reality, you know, the 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 the, the sort of balance between theory and 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 and, and the real world, uh, those are provided through through a long discussion of Galileo. Anyway, uh, the reason I'm giving you this long excursus is because, you know, at the time I was reading and teaching a great deal of Gandhi, mm-hmm. and I was particularly engaged with, and I was teaching in my in my history class. Um, you know this 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 book that this small little tract that Gandhi wrote in 1909 called Hind Swaraj, which means Indian Home Rule or Indian Self Rule, um, and this is pretty early on. You know this is a good sort of almost 40 years before India actually becomes independent, and before Gandhi has actually entered into the Indian national movement as one of its leaders and eventually its 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 sort of defining figure. And he's just thinking through, you know, what does self-rule mean? What is the self? What is rule? What is India? What is England? What is British Raj? Uh, What is modernity? What is tradition? Uh, You know, what is modern civilization? What is Indian civilization? What what is the role of of technology in changing the world, of warfare, of modern professions? And, And how is an old culture like India to adapt and change not only to the fact of foreign rule, but to the fact of of, of a a world that is rapidly changing and modernizing. And I suddenly realized that, that, you know, Gandhi is a sort of Galilean figure for an Indian tradition of political thought. And that Indian political thought and Indian political practice, Indian politics as such, was experiencing a deep crisis and an, a kind of long-term crisis on account of colonialism and imperialism and British rule in India, which had completely displaced 
uh, extant forms of of power and of knowledge and of their relationship with each other um and and this this crisis was was at its height at the same time that gandhi was coming into his own politically and entering into to, to the scene uh first via south africa and finally in 1915 he showed up in india and just before he came to india you know he wrote this this work and i felt that you know since i was thinking of of a macintyre's example of galileo at the time that just as galileo had written this text in the middle of the 17th century which looked at old theories of science and new theories of science and and altered the paradigm of 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 scientific thinking um in a sense gandhi was able to make an analogous intervention in thinking about politics and thinking about self and sovereignty uh through this text through hind swaraj and you know much of this is something that we can understand more clearly in hindsight right uh that 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 we can see this text as a, as a watershed in gandhi's own political development but also eventually in uh, the route taken by indian politics and political movements um you know in in that early part of the 20th century when gandhi enters the picture so that was one way in which macintyre really um you know kind of opened a door for me let's just say uh it's not about the details it's about understanding you know a moment in a history of ideas uh through a set of figures through a set of texts and how those are able to alter the discourse uh and and that's something that that i got from macintyre the other thing the other way in which uh, i found him suggestive and useful was when i was looking at the figure of nehru jawaharlal nehru who was you know india independent india's first prime minister and and a nation builder and before that a great nationalist um you know and a very modern man a very secular man who nonetheless uh, sort of was at the helm of this very traditional in many ways uh, not at all modern uh culture slash nation state um and macintyre uh, looks at ireland and he tries to understand um you know the work done by different kinds of political discourse and different kinds of political imagination um and he looks at for example burke the figure of edmund burke and then the figure of uh, the poet uh, william butler yeats and he says look there are two ways in which you can think about uh the nation you know uh, through a more poetic register and through a more pragmatic register through political philosophy and through poetry uh through nationalism and then through other discourses which are more uh, governance oriented and state oriented and nehru had both facets in him and he kind of makes that transition from being a more poetic and passionate figure to a more uh pragmatic and uh, sort of down to earth uh, and almost instrumentalist figure right going going from his role as a nationalist leader to the leader of the new nation state um and again uh macintyre's analysis of different kinds of political writing uh political prose um and then you know going from there trying to understand different kinds of political thought and imagination um was very helpful to me in in understanding this dilemma or this transition or this uh, kind of dual uh, capacity that a figure like nehru displays very nicely in the indian case i think mm-hmm. um so 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 that's that's how macintyre was uh, you know was such a great find for me and i'm very grateful to to my friend who put me on to him <laughs> what a wonderful way yeah. wonderful way of uh, of being introduced to to his work so in the in the in the next five chapters you 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 deal with each of these five figures um usually alongside or always alongside a different concept that you that you explore um so the first four chapter you explore gandhi and the concept of ahimsa which which usually uh, or at least um in common understanding gets gets understood as non-violence in english which you say is a problematic translation so i was wondering can you first please talk us through gandhi's conceptualization of ahimsa and why was it so important for his idea of self-rule um you know when i first thought i was going to write a book uh, and 
you know, this book is completely unrelated to the dissertation that I wrote at the University of Chicago for my doctoral work. Um, when I th- when I thought this is the book I'm going to write, then I, I initially imagined that the entire book would be about Gandhi. Mm. Uh, because as I said, the very idea of Swaraj and Hind Swaraj is something which which I, I, I came to see through Gandhi. Um, but then, you know, the thing that mostly we associate with Gandhi is the idea of nonviolence. Uh, and, and, and that is Ahimsa. And Ahimsa uh, is, is so central to his political vision. And yet, um, I mean, Ahimsa literally means sort of the absence of the desire to harm or to hurt another. So already embedded in that idea is, you know, the idea of a self and the idea of another and the possible relationship between them, which should be devoid of violence, ideally. Now, in many ways, this is very hard to understand in the context of modern politics, especially if you take a sort of Hobbesian view of politics, right, where the monopoly of violence, the directionality of violence, the relationship of violence between self and other. I mean, this is, these are all things which are definitive uh, in terms of even conceptualizing the political in the modern world. And here is Gandhi, who is a sort of, you know, to, to use the cliche, the father of modern India, the father of the nation, uh, in a sense, the founding father for, for, for the modern Indian nation state. Um, you know, and he, he moves forward in his theory of politics, uh, taking the idea of nonviolence. Right of the absence of the violent impulse as being what structures the relationship between self and other. So how are these things to be reconciled? How can you have a non-violent modern politics? How can you have a Gandhian politics at all? And how does a figure like Gandhi, who seems so out of place in modern thinking about the political, become the sort of key figure uh, in India's politics and its modernity? Right. It's, it's a very sort of basic conundrum, I think. Um, and then I began to try to unpack this notion of Ahimsa uh, as Gandhi set it up or as he used it, um, as he understood it. And I realized that it's actually both a very new idea in Gandhi's hands and a very, very old concept that's floating around in all kinds of discourses of religion, of philosophy, of politics, of power that are available within the Indian world, right? You find Ahimsa in Jainism, you find it in Buddhism, you find it in uh, certain strands and streams of Hinduism, you find it in lived reality uh, through related ideas of, uh, of, of personal virtue, um, you know, of asceticism, of vegetarianism, and so on. Um, so it's not at all an unfamiliar idea for for most Indians at most times. But at the same time, I mean, Gandhi, you know, performs certain operations upon this concept so as to make it politically central and politically viable, um, you know, throughout throughout the course of, of the, the, the early 20th century. And I was very interested in, you know, where he's getting his, uh, his his interpretation of ahimsa from how is he constructing it how is it how how is it that he manages to deploy this idea and make it appeal to the popular political imagination uh, and draw people into the nationalist and anti-colonial movement based on the sense that they are somehow going to be both fighting for swaraj and at the same time doing so non-violently mm-hmm. right. Um, this is all new. Uh, so how does he do it? Um, and one of the things that I found interestingly is that uh, Gandhi, uh, you know, and my own method is, 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 is very, very textually oriented. Uh, and one of the texts that Gandhi engaged with throughout his life uh, was the Bhagavad Gita. Now, the Bhagavad Gita, as you know, is, is, is embedded in one of the two great Sanskrit epics, the Mahabharat, which is the story of a great war between two sort of fratricidal clans of cousins uh, for, for a throne, for a kingdom. And inside this 
on the eve of the battle is embedded this uh, text uh, called the Gita, which is uh, a conversation between uh, one of the main heroes of of the good side, so to speak, in in in, the, in among these warring clans, and his charioteer slash guide slash deity Krishna. Um, a conversation on the eve of war about the ethics of war. Um, uh, literally, they stand in the middle of the battlefield and they have this debate about should one fight, how should one fight, ought one kill one's own, you know, what is the self, what is the other, you know, what is a brother, what is an enemy, um, and, and is power really worth uh, all the violence that, that it necessitates. Um, and I was so intrigued that Gandhi, of all people, who believed in nonviolence, nevertheless read the Bhagavad Gita every single day for about 40 years. Uh, and he would read the text from beginning to end, and he would end, you know, at the end of a few days, and then he would start again. And he would read it together with whoever happened to be around him, uh, in the ashram, or when he was traveling, or in whatever situation. And I thought, you know, why is it that he's thinking about the ethics of war, constantly while trying to construct a politics of nonviolence. Um, what does this mean? How can you do it? What happens to the idea of nonviolence uh, in conversation with uh, one of the oldest debates on war and violence that is available within the South Asian world? Um, and you know, my chapter proceeds through looking at different genealogies for the word Ahimsa that were available to Gandhi, that Gandhi engaged with uh, through Jainism, which, which he got from his native Gujarat, through Vaishnav uh, thought, again, through his Gujarati, Banya, Hindu upbringing, um, and through the Bhagavad Gita, where it's presented as a sort of paradox right, as a sort of almost impossible virtue, uh, which is not open uh, to, to a hero in battle, in a sense, right, but which nonetheless uh, Gandhi chooses as a kind of defining stance of, 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 of the true um, uh, satyagrahi, the, the true uh, sort of warrior involved in the resistance to um, uh, unethical rule, which is, which is imperial rule or colonial rule, right, um, so this business of nonviolent resistance, which was Gandhi's main tactic that he developed uh, as his form of nationalist dissent and protest against colonial rule, um, uh, is, is, is intimately sort of grounded in his constant awareness and engagement uh, with all of these questions that have been discussed within the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and that's, you know, so I, I don't really give you a history of, of the events as they unfold as Gandhi leads uh, various campaigns and mobilizations and movements from, say, 1919 up to, up to independence in 1947. Uh, but rather, I look at the movement of ideas uh, and the different textual uh, conversations in which Gandhi is engaged uh, during this entire period, right? And how that provides him with uh, an ethical orientation with certain understandings, fundamental understandings of the place of violence in modern power, um, uh, which, which, which somehow, uh, you know, at least in principle, if not in practice, uh, guide and inspire so many millions of people to enter into the anti-colonial struggles um, led by Gandhi, uh, in 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 uh, in pre-independence India. Wonderful, thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, in the second chapter, um, you talk about uh, Rabindranath Tagore, who um, seemingly, as you discuss, actually a little bit has a has a respect for Gandhi. Yet in many ways, they have very different ideas in terms of Indian modernity, and it's 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 fascinating that these two are seemingly so close yet yet so different. But what I want to talk about is, um, you, have to, you have a nice line at one point in this chapter, in your second chapter, where you write, if India could be a poem, then that poem would be the Meghaduta. So I wonder, this is a, probably a very good place to start. Could you please tell us about this poem, um, Tagore's of a work, and uh, what you call the longing for the self? Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, 
the thing is when you're writing about figures like gandhi or tagore you know you have to remember they were very 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 prolific as writers as speakers as thinkers as public intellectuals as leaders also in in various ways and of course tagore was was a poet and an artist in addition to being such a public uh, intellectual um so you know one has an embarrassment of riches you can choose different things that you want to look at carefully that you emphasize uh, and a great deal gets left out so you know you can't look at everything so in tagore's case what i looked at apart from his relationship with gandhi and and their lifelong kind of uh, debate and conversation i mean they met in 1915 um when gandhi came back from from south africa and he went to shantiniketan to meet tagore one of the first things he did was to go and meet tagore tagore by this time had already won his nobel prize and was installed as a kind of great sage and great eminence and great poet uh, in in bengal in eastern india and was an international figure already um and gandhi gandhi was his younger contemporary he went to meet him and then began a friendship and a kind of sort of uh, bond of of solidarity even in disagreement which continued to the end of both their lives uh, tagore died in 41 and gandhi was killed in 48 um but that aside i mean one of the things that i try to focus on in my book is uh you know what is tagore's theory of history what is his understanding of the past um how does he relate tradition and modernity um you know he is a modernist as an artist uh but he's also in many ways the last of the great classical figures uh and he bridges uh, a long history of indian poetry uh in indian languages and the birth of modern indian literature he stands as a kind of bridge between uh this this great premodern tradition multilingual tradition and uh modern indian literature uh he wrote in bengali of course uh although he was equally adept in english uh which is what you know may gave him the kind of international edge and and eventually became um a nobel prize winner um at any rate um again this is this is a path that i kind of stumbled on because of my friendship with and my my reading of uh, a a modern bengali uh, writer uh, and critic and, and 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 sort of a literary figure called amit choudhury uh, who who he writes in english lives in kolkata now um, and he has written very interestingly about modernism uh and about tagore in particular and um i started looking at a body of uh tagore's poems uh and essays um where he takes up the the figure of the classical sanskrit poet kalidasa who lived in the 5th century and is considered the sort of apotheosis of sanskrit poetry uh you know the, the 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 sort of most luminous figure in in sanskrit poetry in the ancient world and tagore as a modern poet seemed drawn to this figure and he wrote several poems in which kalidasa comes up as a figure and in particular one of the long sort of uh longest uh, poems that kalidasa composed the meghaduta the cloud messenger is something that uh, tagore keeps returning to uh and i began to understand that that you know through the figure of this ancient poet uh tagore is working out his own relationship to the past and to literary traditions which are very very long uh in india not only in bengali but in, in a range of languages and then all the way going back to sanskrit Uh, as a, as a sort of classical language um working out you know how we can be rooted in that tradition and yet be modern uh in terms of of uh, you know our literary our, our literary history our literary life um but also this particular poem which obsessed him the meghaduta the cloud messenger um it's you know the poem itself is about a figure who is exiled from his home 
and while he's serving out his term in exile he longs for home he longs for a return to his home which is a kind of idyllic place uh, and and longs for a reunion with his beloved who has gotten left behind at home and he's so crazed by longing that in the rainy season when he sees a cloud he gives his message of love and longing to the cloud to carry back to his home which is far away this is the sort of basic structure and premise of the poem mm-hmm. but you know if you start thinking about you know what is this idea of home from which one is separated uh, where is it in time and space how is that longing for home expressed the the self is here in exile and the beloved is there at home far away you know separated from one um how is there to be a reunion between the self and the other between one's self and one's beloved estranged beloved um you know what is the nature of the message that 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 kalidasa's yaksha is sending through this cloud what kind of a messenger is the cloud anyway uh and you know i just i i took the the entire imagery of this poem and i started to look at how for tagore it became such a dense metaphor that he returned to through a cycle of poems you know written over decades i mean right from his youth to his very deathbed he was thinking again and again and again of this poem and of this poet and of this figure of the yaksha and i started to think that Amit Chaudhary, you know, is right that there is a basic uh, premise of estrangement and a basic longing for reunion, uh, which Tagore, which for Tagore defines how we relate to the past and to history. Right? It it is his sense of historicity that you know we are always already estranged from uh, our home, which is. left behind and india faces this particular question uh, as it it moves forward in, into its own political future which is an unknown in in tagore's lifetime right uh, how is it to form any kind of relationship with its own past with its own premodern literary or other kinds of traditions uh, with its own estranged self that has now become other to it and will there ever be a reunion in some future right of the old india and the new india and tagore actually explicitly writes in these terms um in 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 a couple of his essays that i also look at um so i kind of pick up this metaphor of of the self longing and 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 i argue that actually you know we can think of it in in purely literary terms but um it has political ramifications and you can see them still even in contemporary india in that we have a very we have a very uncomfortable relationship with our past you know we want to be seen we want to be recognized as an old civilization as an ancient culture you know um as 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 sort of founded on this kind of deep genealogy of ideas and practices and arts and 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 uh you know and different kinds of knowledge systems but at the same time we we are kind of also terminally estranged from that past right and that is the very condition of modernity um and 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 there are many things in the past which we should and we ought to really leave behind right and and which with which we can only have a very very problematic and a highly mediated relationship um so as i worked through you know tagore talking to kalidasa i was really trying to think about modern india talking to in a way ancient india in as far as such a conversation is even possible with all of the pathos and all of the silences and all of the lapses in language and memory that characterize this kind of a of an almost impossible conversation which is a one sided conversation because the past doesn't talk back to us mm-hmm. it's like the yaksha's beloved never answers him you know we never know if the cloud is actually able to deliver that message or or what comes of it in the end i mean the poem the poem ends without a final reunion of the estranged lovers um and and that is 
that is the nature of history too you know it, it's 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 directed in one way uh and 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 there is no sort of final reconciliation and i think tagore saw that and that is that is something which contributed to his deep suspicion of nationalism as a teleological project right which must end in a kind of grand reclaiming uh, of the nation right uh, uh, you know that 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 sense of union and reconciliation which for for tagore is fundamentally impossible because of the very nature of our existence in time uh, and our relationship to history uh, you know for a nationalist uh, it's it's the exact opposite and tagore was fundamentally against nationalism and again this I, i you know like with gandhi i see this as one of the great paradoxes we think of him as our national poet <laughs> the the man who wrote our national anthem one of our great nationalists and he was completely against nationalism not only because of its sort of you know basic marriage to certain kinds of modern violence uh, which was gandhi's problem but also because of the deeply embedded theory of history within nationalist ideology uh, that militates against uh, the the fundamental nature of our existence in time which is which is what tagore the poet is grappling with wonderful but thank you so much and this really is a really is a, a, a fascinating chapter and you discuss this uh, this conversation and of course because it's, there's so many ex- excerpts from the poetry it's, it's a beautiful chapter to read as well and uh, the next chapter moves on to a figure which you as you already mentioned is, was a bit of a, a left field choice and uh, but it works wonderfully well this is the the artist uh, abanin jonat tagore and um, you discuss especially you discuss his painting uh, mother india among some others and um, what you explore here is i suppose the, the reclaiming of of indian traditions so i was wondering what's the what's the self that you read in his paintings and, and why did you decide to choose him as one of your figures well <clears throat> abhinandranath tagore he was a he was a nephew of rabindranath tagore and uh, i mean they were not far apart in age they were closely associated with each other throughout their lives and um you know he's he, he was an offbeat choice in the sense that he was not in politics as such he's not a political figure um he was an artist um but i felt that um partly because of his close association with tagore um and partly because of the kind of role he played in a certain kind of cultural nationalism um you know that that he had to be part of this this history of ideas that i was trying to write and abhinandranath in many ways arguably is the father of modern indian art you know and i think the realization that there is such a thing as indian art that we can even theorize and conceptualize such a thing that we can write a history of it uh you know for a couple of thousand years moving through a vast geographical spread of the subcontinent a range of styles and media and genres um you know completely varied diverse ideas of 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 patronage of circulation of 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 uh, you know who who are the artists what kind of uh, sculpture architecture painting uh, other forms are they making you know which 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 kinds of states pre modern states are they supported by and and do they flourish in how this can all be written into one history and that history then be claimed as the history of mod- the modern indian nation's art right all of this is is a kind of process that really starts to happen and come together again in the late 19th early 20th century uh in and around calcutta and shantiniketan uh you know in in the history of art it's called the bengal renaissance uh uh and and this this bengal school uh, uh you know tagore and abhinandranath are at the center of it uh, they are at the heart of it uh and uh, so many of modern india's uh, great art historians uh, artists painters sculptors writers teachers pedagogues institution builders 
um, you know, they all come out of this kind of crucible uh, around Shantiniketan, around Kolkata in the early early part of the 20th century. Um, and Abhinindranath is kind of the central figure in that. And I think it's really not feasible to argue about, you know, make an argument, a kind of global argument about the political foundations of any modern republic uh, without uh, finding a place for the aesthetic in, uh, in the larger argument about the political, right? Because art is something which is so central to the understanding of the selfhood, uh, of not just the artist, but of, of the entire community, of the entire nation, uh, you know, uh, in, which, in which that artist operates. Uh, and all of the debates about, uh, in modernism, in, in modern art, all over the world, uh, are really about uh, the fashioning or the collapse or the crisis of the self. Uh, and, and I felt that this is something which is taking place in the Indian context as well. And that story needs to be told as that story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in this larger narrative that I was constructing about the search for the self. Um, and the idea that I, I, I focus on here is the idea of aesthetic shock, um, uh, some vague. Now, this is not an idea that is, you know, is coming out of, of modern politics. It's, it's something which is actually a part of you know, the history of Buddhism uh, and Buddhist thought and Buddhist philosophy uh, which the modern uh, art historian Ananda Kumaraswamy uh, writes about. And Kumaraswamy is somebody who is in conversation with the Tagores, uh, uh, you know, in, in the early uh, 1900s, uh, the 1910s and so on, before he goes off to America uh, to the Boston uh, Fine Arts Museum. Um, and Kumaraswamy writes some of the first histories of Indian art. He makes those classifications you know, what is Gupta art, what is Chola art, what is Buddhist art, what is Rajput painting, what is Pahari painting. I mean, all these kinds of basic categorizations, right? Taking this mass of data, of art historical data, and trying to make sense of it vis-a-vis Indian history as such and Indian politics as such. This is something which Kumaraswamy first does. And he elucidates this idea of aesthetic shock as, a, as an epistemological experience, as a, as a religious experience, as a veridical experience. And again, it's not something which, you know, Abhinindranath theorizes or talks about as such, but I found it helpful in allowing us to imagine how the modernists, how the first purveyors and makers of modern Indian art confronted the idea of an Indian aesthetic selfhood, right? Through this kind of shock of recognition, this this moment of truth, right? This sudden realization that, um, you know, through art, through painting, through all of the arts, in fact, um, it is possible to express something of this Indian self, right? And it's possible to also posit a history for it. Now, we can debate that history. We can say that for hundreds of years, nobody was thinking in historical terms, right? Uh, the, you know, the miniaturists in the Mughal ateliers or the, you know, the makers of, 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 of the great sculptural and architectural, uh, you know, works of Vijayanagar, for example, just to take two, two very well-known examples. I mean, you know, for them, this, this totalitarian sort of a, not a good word, but this, this totalizing vision, right, of, uh, you know, that all of this can, can be understood under the sign of the nation, right, that all of this hangs together, that all of this forms part of a conversation, right, that all of these are ideas that are accessible to us, forms and genres and and criteria of beauty and truth that are accessible to us, that are ours, that make us who we are as Indians. You know, this idea is is indeed in the nature of a shock, mm. right? And there is a moment when it comes on, and you can see it uh, in 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 that early uh, Shantiniketan. I was, in fact, just a month ago, I was in Shantiniketan at the Vishwabharati University. I was invited to speak about Abhinindranath. Uh, you know, uh, in the English and the art department there. Uh, 
and we opened up all of the paintings that i discussed including mother india including the pa- passing of shah jahan um you know and and right there at that university where all these figures acolytes disciples uh, associates of the tagores had had gathered in to create that university actually you can see their artworks all over the campus even today right um and what was it about their vision that became so key that made shantiniketan such a such a node such a headquarter uh for the you know creation of the selfhood of this modern nation right um and many of their paintings uh, i recently saw also in calcutta just about a month ago for the first time i saw in the originals uh there was an eg- uh, curated exhibition at the victoria memorial of abhinandranath tagore's works and i saw the original mother india you know i saw the original passing of shah jahan you know all of which had a sort of classical hue and cast a kind of uh, you know as though drawn in the style of 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 you know an older art right but therein lies the modernity of this vision right that that how is this to be harnessed as our own in the modern world and why does it continue to be meaningful right uh, i mean i discuss at great length that that painting the passing of shah jahan mm-hmm. in which shah jahan the, the great mughal emperor uh, you know who commissioned and and had the taj mahal built as a tomb for his wife mumtaz mahal uh, you know why you know it, it shows him on his deathbed mm-hmm. it shows him uh taking one last look at the taj mahal which is at a distance across the river in agra uh and he's he's just about to die and is that's that moment of of truth as it were that moment of contemplation of this great thing of beauty this great artifact that you know he's responsible for but that he is going to be estranged from through his own mortality and abhinandranath made this painting and Tagore Rabindranath wrote a poem about it called Shah Jahan right um and again i feel that the tagores are returning to the relationship between power sovereignty death mortality beauty and the nation right and that we can look at a range of metaphors that they explore right which become sort of part and parcel of their vision of history mm-hmm. right and and since they are the great thinkers of modern india they are the sort of founding fathers right how does that get written into the dna of this modern nation state and and how does that produce the peculiarities of the indian nation uh which are with us till today right um in which the non modern has to have a place mm-hmm. in which the past has to have a place in which um entire histories of aesthetics uh of literary and 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 of uh, sort of artistic and uh, you know uh, uh, traditions of architecture and painting and so on those have to have a place even as the modern is being constructed um how do we work through this by reading very carefully these different kinds of artifacts and texts <laughs> thank you um If you don't mind terribly I'm we're going to I think I'll have to skip over your, your next chapter which is about Nehru simply because we're we're short of time and you and you mentioned him earlier and uh, I'd like to discuss the 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 final the final full chapter which is about uh, Ambedkar of course the, the great Dalit leader and the and the drafter of the of the Indian constitution and, and what what's interesting and what you found interesting and, and explored is how he took a religious turn towards the end of his life and, and converted to Buddhism so I was wondering could you please talk us through this 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 turn to help us better understand um, what you term the self's burden yeah um you know my book sort of ends uh, ends with ambedkar and uh, he's also sort of uh, the last uh, the youngest of, of of this group and and the last to die um and in many ways the most interesting figure of 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 all the, the sort of founding figures and in fact i'm going to write my next book as a life of ambedkar no. uh but in 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 righteous republic i i looked uh, again only at a, at one aspect of his of his work and his life and his thought which is 
in the very final months of his life, his uh, conversion, uh, his adoption of, 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 of a kind of Buddhism and his conversion to, to Buddhism, uh, and along with himself taking, you know, uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of, of former untouchables or Dalits uh, into the fold of this new Buddhism. Um, and Ambedkar, in a sense, was the most modern of the moderns. He was the most secular, the most um, at war with, with tradition, because tradition is where he saw the caste system coming from. And caste system was responsible for the fundamental, fundamentally inegalitarian and unjust nature of Indian society and of Indian politics. And he felt that, you know, modern India could never start out with this, this kind of warrant this 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 promise of of equality and of universal adult franchise and of democracy and of fraternity, uh, all of the values of the modern nation state could not be realized so long as caste continued to be the way uh, in which Indian society was structured and Indian culture proceeded. Uh, it was fundamentally hierarchical, differential, and unequal. Uh, and so he you know, approached the problem of inequality in many different ways throughout the length of his, his career and his life, uh, politically, uh, you know, in, in conversation with, but also in, in, at variance, in a sense, with, um, you know, with, with, with the British imperial state, with the colonial master, with the Congress and its, its nationalist endeavor, uh, with other players in the political field, uh, eventually, he came to be at the helm of the drafting of the Indian Constitution, and he was able to enshrine these democratic and egalitarian principles in the Constitution itself and write them in, as it were, to this charter document. And now, nevertheless, after independence, after the promulgation of the Constitution in 1950, in 1956, just as he was literally on his deathbed, he nonetheless turned to religion and the conversion of Hindus who are somehow attached to the caste system into Buddhists who are free of the idea of caste, he, 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 he found that to be perhaps yet another attempt to deal with this kind of endemic theory of inequality and reality of inequality that, that structures and defines Indian society. And he was not really a religious man. Right. He was always in revolt against tradition and everything that went with it, including religion, which is such a big part of, of Indian history and Indian tradition and, 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 and you know, India's pre-modern past. Um, so why did he do this? Right. Why the turn to religion? Uh, why conversion? Why Buddhism and not some other religion? Uh, and what kinds of values, norms and what promise of a different politics did he see in Buddhism. Um, and, you know, I, I go through the details of, of, of how he even changed Buddhism itself to create a new Buddhism, a new alternative Ambedkarite Buddhism, which in fact challenges many of the basic fundamental premises of, 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 of Buddhism as classically understood or as canonically understood in a range of other Buddhist sectarian traditions which are ex extant in India and in other parts of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just that he's turning to religion, but that it's a kind of revisionist Buddhism. Uh, and what is it that he salvages from Buddhism uh, so that it still remains Buddhism, but is nonetheless this new thing that he's trying to create? Um, and I see that the idea, you know, one of the basic ideas of, 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 of Buddhism is that you know, it's a path to the liberation of the self from suffering. Suffering is something which we are stuck with as humans, as mortals, as living beings. Um, and what are the different ways to, to deal with suffering? This is what Buddhism is about. And I try to argue that in many ways, Ambedkar was also looking at the problem of suffering, which I call the self's burden, the burden that the self must inevitably carry right, as, as part of being in the world at all. Um, he looked at suffering as central to, uh, just as the Buddha did, but suffering not in the sense of individual suffering, 
suffering that you know you or I encounter because of our karma, because of our deeds, because of our circumstances, because of our past life, because of our you know peculiar temperaments and decisions that we make, and so on, or what befalls us. But suffering as being endemic to a society that is an unequal society. So suffering as social suffering, suffering as something which is ubiquitous in India. because we do not treat one another as equals with respect with dignity right with the idea that fundamentally we are all equal whatever be our diversity and our differences right and because caste thinking and the caste system does not allow that kind of basic relationship of equality between self and other therefore india is condemned to reproducing large scale forms of of suffering which are the entailment of 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 a basically inegalitarian world view mm-hmm. right so i'm trying to say that if we can at all understand ambedkar as a buddhist because you know there that's doubtful because he changes buddhism so fundamentally in in, in even adopting it that to the extent that we can even understand him as a buddhist we have to try to come to terms with his interpretation of suffering um his reinterpretation of it uh, in a radical way uh, in a way that is fundamentally political right and that acts as a critique of caste society right which then has to be addressed through various political measures uh, and through various other forms of political action and political self-fashioning that he advocates through 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 the rest of his his politics and his work so that's that's how i i come to this this idea of the self's burden the self being the entire self of india of caste society as such and the burden being you know that that we are stuck with forms of inequality that are so pernicious and so deep and ha- historically have produced such you know endemic forms of injustice in our society that we can never really dream of building a just society until we get to the root of the problem which is inequality inequality is the root of our suffering you know in a nutshell this is what i'm trying to argue and i'm saying that buddhism is just a way for ambedkar to come to that understanding after trying out many different things in the course of his life <laughs> well, thank you and it's um it's wonderful to hear that your that your next book will uh, will be about the life of ambedkar so we'll look forward to to hearing um, or to reading that Hopefully, sometime, sometime in the next few yeah. years. I was wondering, um, apart from that book, are there any other current or future projects which you're which you're working on now? Um, well, you know, I mean, one of the unexpected outcomes of writing Writers Republic was that I became very interested, became seriously interested in the history of art, uh-huh. um, and I have been exploring and developing. uh my my interest in that direction quietly i mean i haven't really written anything much so far um but i have a sort of project on the back burner um where i hope to look uh, more centrally at the arts right rather than uh you know at at uh, other kinds of social and political texts or discourses um and i also you know recently uh just very recently less than a month ago i lost my father who was a poet and uh, you know he has a whole body of work uh, in hindi uh, as a poet and uh, one of the things that i've long been thinking about but now of course i feel that i have to start on it is um, translating some of some of his his uh, work uh, to the extent that it's at all possible to translate um and then also through you know through his writing through hindi poetry through hindi literature um you know again returning to some of the problems that i had raised for myself in uh, in righteous republic um you know thinking about uh, the premodern and the modern tradition and modernity uh, the vernacular and the cosmopolitan um you know india and the west uh, and these different sorts of questions but being able to do it in a completely different way and and also in a strangely intimate way through through my father's poetry where many of these themes are are quite central to his own you know to his own quest and his own search so that's something that i now want to do on a kind of war footing um since a vast body of his work remains inaccessible to those who don't read hindi 
and I would like to try to fix that as far as possible. Wonderful. They, they, they both sound like really, really wonderful projects. So um, there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for, for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. I really enjoyed reading the book and I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd like to recommend the book um, to people at home. It's really, uh, really wonderful in how readable it is. Even we're dealing with these big, these big concepts and these important figures at an important moment of Indian history, but it reads, it reads so, so, so smoothly. So uh, I'd like to recommend that to people at home and, and thanks again for coming on. You know, Ian, uh, just before we close, I mean, there's, there's, there's one small thing I wanted to say, which is that, you know, uh, thank you for, 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 for discussing my book with me and for, for enjoying it and recommending it and so on. But I just wanted to say that this book is really just a beginning. And, uh, you know, of course, I could have written about other founding fathers. I could have taken other concepts. I could have looked at other texts to unpack carefully and so on. Um, but, you know, intellectual history, history of ideas, these are very, very nascent, in, uh, at least in, in the Indian humanities and social sciences. Um, and, and I myself, you know, I'm not, as I told you, most of my training is literary and linguistic, philological, you know, um, I don't do the kind of empiricist or archival history that, um, you know, you would expect in a history of Indian nationalism. Um, you know, my work is more genealogical, more philological. Um, so I really just wanted to suggest through this book, um, you know, not, not a, a history of events, not a history of, 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 of sort of grand historical uh, narratives and so on, uh, but just uh, perhaps new ways to think about the same material, right? New ways to approach it uh, and more exploratory, interdisciplinary and playful ways even to some extent of unpacking, you know, what happened. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's very, very gratifying to see that, um, you know, people like you find the book readable and enjoyable uh, and accessible um, and I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that, that I can continue this kind of conversation with my readers uh, through, through future work as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today, we've been talking about Righteous Republic by Ananya Vajpayee. Thanks again for downloading and hope you'll tune in again next time. Ta-ra.